Gospel, uh, chapter 11. John's Gospel, chapter 11. I just want to read one verse uh, at this time. It's the 11th chapter of John. Verse 35. Two words only. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The aged Apostle John wrote this lovely gospel of his about some 60 years after Jesus had finished his life on this earth. He was the first disciple that the Lord called, and he's also the last. James, his brother, is gone. Peter is gone. Nathaniel, Bartholomew, Andrew, all of them are gone. Even the mighty apostle Paul has run his race, has finished his course, and he too is gone. Tremendous changes has taken place uh, over those 60 years. We know that Titus in AD 70 came in and raised Jerusalem to the ground, burned the temple, did not leave one stone standing upon another just as Jesus had predicted. Thousands were slain in Jerusalem. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands were taken off into Italy, Rome and other places. 50,000 of them built the Colosseum. It was a dark day. And so the Jews have been scattered abroad. No longer do they have a capital city. It's destroyed. There is no temple to worship in. They're holding no feast days. No sacrifices can be made. And so things is in a dire position for them. Almost as if their religion has almost come to a halt. The church now is in its third generation. And it's riddled, absolutely riddled, with false teaching and false doctrines and false teachers. Just as Peter and Jude and Paul had warned would happen. New Testament has been written with the exception of Just John's Gospel, his three short epistles, and his majestic book of Revelation. And so now, some six decades later, the Holy Spirit is prompting the Apostle John to write one last Gospel. To finish off and make the full canon of Scripture. Now John's Gospel is very different from what is called the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The reason why they're called synoptic is two words, syn, S-Y-N, and optic. Syn means together, and optic means see. So when they're seen together, they are very, very similar. Very similar indeed. But whenever you look at John's gospel, it's very, very different than the other three. And it's almost John has sat down and, and 
began to think of the things that they didn't put in that he would put in. Now, there are some things that are the same, but by and large, it's very, very different indeed. Its style is different. Its substance is different. John writes not like the learned Dr. Luke. He writes as a simple fisherman. Commentators say that his vocabulary is that of a seven-year-old child, just some 600 words. He repeats words a lot in it. Very, very simple to read. This is why oftentimes new Christians are given the Gospel of John to read first. And yet he says the most profound things in a very, very simple way regarding Christ. And one of the most profound things that he ever wrote is this shortest verse of the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. I think that whenever we come to a verse like this that Really, we should take our shoes off. We're, we're standing on holy ground. And I don't think that myself or anyone actually will ever plumb the depth of the meaning of those two words, Jesus wept. Now, John was recalling the events of Jesus' life. He certainly knew what Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written. But I don't think there was anyone that probably knew Jesus more than John. Uh, he was Jesus' cousin. He was first called by Jesus. He walked with him every day for three and a half years. He was very, very familiar with everything to do with Jesus. He saw the miracles. He heard all of the teaching. Uh, he was a witness to the actions of the Messiah on a daily basis. And he was there at the cross when all the other disciples had fled. John was the only one of them to be standing there at the cross seeing Jesus crucified. He was one of the first at the tomb apart from Mary. He was in the upper room in the day of Pentecost. He, he stood before that at Mount Olivet and saw Jesus ascending up into heaven. So this is a man that is very acquainted with the works and the teachings of Christ himself. And so here he is with the help of the Holy Spirit who is now prompting him, encouraging him to write his gospel and he's sitting back. I can imagine him in his chair. It's now time to put pen to papyrus and he's sitting back in his chair I can imagine with his eyes closed looking back over six decades remembering all the sights and sounds of those days and everything he learned and was taught and saw and recalling that and, and with the help of the Holy Spirit trying to differentiate certain things that he saw and he felt that the others didn't at least they didn't record it but now he's going to record it and his mind would go back, for instance, to the, the raising of the dead. And he was there that day. He was in that very room in the house of Jairus. When Jairus' little dead daughter was lying in that bed, he was there. He saw it with his own eyes. When Jesus walked over and spoke to her and says, Talithi kumai, little maid, I say unto you, arise. And she arose. John was there that day whenever they walked into the city of Nain. And that poor widow woman who was 
heading the funeral procession, procession of her only son. And Jesus had compassion on her. And he stopped the procession. And he went over and he touched the open coffin. And he said, young man, I say unto you, rise. And he rose up and began to speak. John saw that with his own eyes. And John, of course, was there at the raising of Lazarus. Jesus, dear friend, who had been in the tomb for four days already. And in his mind's eye, he, he, could, he, could, he could see the crowd. And he could hear the wailing and the crying of the people. And, and he could hear Mary and Martha saying to Jesus, If you had been here, if you just had been here, our brother would not have died. And he heard Jesus say, Where have you laid him? And they says, Come and see. And so they walked to the tomb. And he watched as Jesus prayed, lifted up his eyes and talked to the Father. And then he looked and watched intently as a silence fell. And Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And can you imagine John standing there seeing Lazarus walking out of that tomb still with his grave clothes on, shuffling out into the daylight. Could you imagine what that moment must have been like? Well, John could imagine it. It was vivid in his memory. How could he ever forget that? But looking back, recalling that tremendous moment, that greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed, and it was. And yet, standing watching Jesus and looking right into his eyes, he saw the most profound thing he'd ever seen in his entire life. He saw Jesus weeping. He had never, ever seen that before. And after 60 years, it was burned into his consciousness. And he looked, and he remembered Jesus weeping. Sure, there was a lot of people weeping that day. Mary and Martha were weeping. Lazarus' friends were there. They were weeping. There would be professional mourners there who were paid to weep. That was the custom. To make sure there was loud cryings and wailings. But when John writes about Jesus weeping, and says Jesus wept, the word for wept has never ever been used before in the Bible. It's only used one time when John wrote it. His weeping was different than the rest. And it wasn't a big, shouty, showy weeping like those professional mourners. It wasn't even the wailing of Lazarus' two sisters. But it was a deep heartfelt, sobbing, racking, sobbing. Big tears would flow down his dusty face onto his beard. And Jaws saw that, and he had never seen that before. And when it came to writing that, in his limited vocabulary, how could he express 
what he saw with his own eyes. That after 60 years came back to his memory as if it was just yesterday. And he took his quill. I could imagine him hesitating. What am I going to write? What can I say here? And he just wrote those two words. Jesus wept. Uh, if, if this had been David in the Old Testament writing like he did in the Psalms, I guarantee David would have put Selah after that, which means stop, think, read that again. And it's as if as John has said to us, hey, think about that. Meditate on that. Try to plumb the depths of that if you can't, for I can't. I can only say Jesus wept. I'm stumped for words. So what does this tell us about Jesus? What does it reveal to us about the Son of God? Well, I've been wondering about this. Maybe it's because of this past six or eight weeks we've just been to so many funerals. So what does it say? First of all, I think that it tells us that we have a Savior who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Paul said in Romans 12 verse 15 that we rejoice with those who do rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We enter in. We empathize. We feel what they feel. Imagine, here is the incarnate Son of God. Here is God in human flesh. And he's so entering into the pain and the hurt and the sorrow of his dear friends that he can do nothing else but weep. Openly, publicly. For everybody to see unashamedly. He's weeping. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were true friends. He often visited their home. It was a place where he loved to, to go to. A place where Mary anointed him with that beautiful ointment. A place where Martha fed him, tended him. A place where Lazarus made him feel relaxed. His family would bring a smile to his face. And although Jesus loved all men, no question about that, but yet there was something about this family. And, and no doubt that many people invited them for, for supper, especially in the year of popularity. Who would not want to have invited them to supper? The miracle worker, the great teacher. But wherever he went, it was this home, this family, this brother, these sisters, that he could relax in their company. Just the way that among the twelve that he had around him, there was the three, Peter, James, and John, that formed his inner circle that he felt most intimate with. Didn't love the others less, 
but somehow or other in his humanity he felt more intimate. He shared more with them. Uh, he, he, in, in his most poignant moments, it was those three he would take aside in the garden to pray with, to see him in his transfiguration. And that's what our humanity does, isn't it? We may love everybody, but not everybody you can totally relate to in an intimate, relaxed way. And it was the same with Jesus in his humanity. And somehow this brought a warm bond of friendship that resulted in many, many visits to this little household. But now death had invaded this household. And Jesus was not immune to the feeling of his friends. And even though he knew exactly what he was going to do that day, he knew it four days ago. But even though he knew that that day would end up in rejoicing and great joy when he would raise him from the dead, but yet at this moment, he's looking at his dear friends and his heart is aching. And he enters into that deep sorrow and he's actually moved to tears. Now, I always say to families that are grieving that grief is normal. It's natural. You know, there's a teaching that's come into the church. I don't know how it ever get in, but it's come in that somehow it's wrong to grieve, that it's almost sinful to grieve. I don't know what planet these people are on. I don't know what Bible they read. It isn't. Now, of course, if that grief is crushing as five years, ten years down the road, the same as it had been that initial few days, then we would know the devil has got in on it. But it's natural and normal. The psalmist said, about catching his tears in a bottle, are they not in your book? And in those days, when people were crying salt tears, as we say, somebody would go up with a little bottle and catch those tears and hold it as a memorial. Yes, they did feel the loss and the pain and the hurt and the sorrow. It is true that one day in Revelation 21 where God will wipe away all tears from our eyes and there will be no more sorrow or crying for the former things are passed away. But it hasn't happened yet. Aren't you glad for a Savior who feels your hurt? You know, the Greeks worshipped gods that had no feeling of compassion for their so-called subjects. But we have a God who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, who feels our weaknesses, who feels what we feel. He's lived in this earth, he's seen it, he's felt it, he's cried. And even though in his divinity he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, yet in his humanity he sat where they sat. He felt what they felt. Could it be, doesn't say, I'm just speculating, but could it be that maybe he had shed a tear here for Lazarus? Lazarus has been dead four days. He's been in Abraham's bosom, paradise. He has seen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's maybe seen friends that has gone before. And Jesus is about to bring him back. 
wonderful as that is, but one day, Lazarus, like every man, is going to have to go through that death process. And Lazarus is going to have to go through it all over again, either through age or through illness, but he would go through it again. So maybe a part of that, maybe, was a tear for Lazarus. And then secondly, he wept when he saw what sin had done to his creation. Not that he was unaware of it before. He was very aware of it. He saw it every day all around him. He saw the sickness and the disease all around him. And he healed everyone that came to him. So he was very well aware of the results of sin and the devastating effects of what it had done to his creation. In fact, later on in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you remember that? How that he cried and he wept over the city and it was loud crying on that occasion. He cried aloud over the city because of what was going to happen to it because they did not recognize the day of their visitation. He saw way down the years. He saw Titus coming and destroying the city. He saw all of that. And he wept because what a sin had done to his creation. Remember after the death of John the Baptist, first thing he wanted to do was just get away. Just wanted to get away. And he into the desert place. Just, just to be alone. Just to process all that was happening. But the crowd followed him. And because of his great compassion for those who were like sheep without a shepherd, he healed their sick among them and he embraced them and he ministered to them in spite of what he felt and what he was going through and his sense of, of loss with John the Baptist and what sin had done. But never, never did he feel so keenly the effects of sin as that day at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. These were his dearest friends on earth. Hard to lose dear friends, isn't it? You know, I was at a funeral there on Thursday and I was talking to a pastor, a good friend, whose wife is dying. He says, David, I think it's down to days now. Here's what he said to me. He says, I have done dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of funerals. But he says, I have never felt in all of that what I'm feeling today. Because this is my wife that's dying. This is my household. And he says, it's very different. And it is. Make no mistake. That sin in Eden, that one willful, disobedient act of Adam brought great devastation and trouble and sorrow and tears to God's creation. And nobody sensed it more than Jesus, the Son of God. Nobody understands what sin can do better than the Son of God. It put him on a cross. He died on that cross for your sins and my sins. Nobody's more qualified to know what it's done than Jesus. 
And in that one sinful, disobedient act, that one stroke, innocence was gone. The beauty of creation was marred. Its benefits and disadvantages to mankind was greatly diminished. Now the world will be under a curse and it will be ravaged by death and disease and broken and scarred by sin. No wonder, John said, Jesus wept. He wept. And whenever he did weep, Verse 36, the Jews said, See how he loved him. See how he loved him. He loved all of them. Had they only known it, he loved all of them. And he loves us. But at that moment, he could not hold back the tears. I can imagine him standing his shoulders heaving, great deep sobbing, tears flooding. This is God incarnate weeping. See what I'm saying this morning? How could you plumb the depths of that? How could your mind take that in? No wonder John was arrested with that thought and recorded it for us by the help of the Holy Spirit who wants us to remember it also. Verse 33 and 38, if we had read that, John tells us that Jesus groaned in the Spirit and was troubled. Not only did he weep, but he groaned in the Spirit and was troubled. Groan there means agitated. And in the New Testament, it indicates displeasure and even indignation with something or someone. When John says he was troubled, the word there literally means that he trembled, he shook with indignation and grief. And what sin had done to his creation, it moved him emotionally. He was shaking. And this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Maybe he was moved also and troubled and groaning when he heard their wailing, wails of despair, knowing what he was going to do. Having told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> moments, just moments ago he told her that, but she didn't get it. She thought he was talking about the future. He was talking about right now. And they're wailing. And the professional mourners are wailing louder. And then to cap it all, in verse 37, some of them said, could not this man, was, that was a derogatory way of putting it, could not this man, who opened the eyes of the blind, also kept this man from dying. 
You know, if you read that story very carefully, and we didn't, if you read the whole story carefully, this is the third time that someone has insinuated that it was his fault. Mary and Martha, if you had been here, he was just down the road. Literally, just down the road. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. Insinuating, it's your fault. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind, could not even heal this man also? It's his fault. It's always God's fault, isn't it? How quick are we to blame God when things doesn't go the way we think they should go? Maybe he wept about that also. See, there's the old chestnut right there, isn't it? If God is really God, why didn't he prevent his friend from dying? I mean, if God is, if he's all powerful and he's all mighty, then he can't be all loving or else he would have healed this man. Or if he's all loving, then he can't be all powerful because he couldn't heal this man. So we need to think a little bit before we accuse God of anything. Perhaps, perhaps it was the sarcasm and the unbelief that caused Jesus to groan in spirit and be troubled. As well as natural grief for his friends. However, Jesus wept. He wept. Isn't it amazing that If, if we had been there that day and we saw what John saw and we saw a man who'd been in a grave four days walk out of that tomb, you would think that that would so impact you that you couldn't do anything else but believe that this is the Son of God. But not everyone believed. Not everyone believed. Isn't that amazing? Not every one of those who stood there and saw that with their own two eyes actually believed. In fact, some of them immediately went to the priests to find a way to kill him. And not only that, but to put Lazarus to death also. Can you believe that? Can you believe the depths of the sin in the heart of men that would do that? Because sometimes we think, you know, America will change everybody's opinion. It doesn't always. It hardened some of these. made them worse. Because their hearts were ready hard. Some of them already hated Jesus and despised him. <laughs> but you see, Jesus was about to demonstrate to all at the tomb that day that he was the resurrection and he was the life. That all power had been given unto him. That he had the keys of death and hell. That he alone is the victor over the grave. Look at verse 38. 
Then Jesus, again groaning himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead four days. You know, Martha still hadn't got it yet. She just thought Jesus simply wanted to look at the remains, as we would do today. Only the trouble is, decay had set in. And Jesus said to her, he's reminding her, Did not I say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Did, did I not just tell you that a few moments ago? Sometimes Jesus really, he really struggled with our unbelief, didn't he? You know, there's times he, remember he said to How long must I be with you? Verse 41, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. So he's already done his praying. This wasn't for his sake, this is for their sake. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus didn't raise everybody from the dead. There's three he did. Record it. And so he had prayed to the Father just, just to know the will of the Father in this situation. Haven't got that. Then he was supremely confident. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, I read somewhere recently, uh, one scholar said, actually, what he actually said grammatically was, Lazarus, here, out. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't you like to hear those words? Wouldn't that have been amazing just standing there, listening to Jesus say that, and wondering what's going to happen next? <laughs> And he who had died came out bound, handed foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And you know, of course, Start a whole chain reaction against Jesus. In John chapter 5, we'll just be finished in a moment. You notice how Jesus said in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth? In John chapter 5, verse 24, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, and come forth listen to me those of you who are bereaved listen read that again what a great promise listen to that do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and they will come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation I can do nothing Myself do nothing as I hear I judge and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. What a saviour we serve today. What mighty resurrection power is in the Son of God that will raise every man from the grave. Every sinner and every saint, without exception, will be raised. Some to everlasting life, some to everlasting condemnation, but all will be raised. And the voice of the Son of God will shout. And every ear will hear. <laughs> don't ask me how that happens. I don't know. It's a miracle. But God is a miraculous, omnipotent, all-powerful God. And yet, and yet, and yet, he stood at the grave and he wept. He wept. I like his power. I like to read of his miracles. I like to think about his resurrection life. I like to think that he feels what I feel. And he's touched with the feelings of my infirmities. And if I'm going through a hard time, he knows about it. And he's not aloof. And he cares. And that scene at that grave lived with John for 60 years. He never forgot it. How could he forget it? And that little verses, two verses, shortest in the Bible, Jesus wept. It is so poignant. It is so profound. And we're only scratching the surface of what it really means. Let's pray.